Welcome to the Getting Real with Hillary show, where ordinary heroes tell extraordinary stories during unique and never been heard before conversations with your host, Hillary Arno Burns. Hillary's unique listening and way of asking questions results in conversations that aren't usually talked about. So you can create the life that you really want, but are afraid you can't really have. We are demonstrating the greatness in the human spirit and creating a world where we all reclaim our birthright of joy, happiness, purpose, and passion. Now, here's your host, Hilary Arno Burns. Welcome to the Getting Real with Hillary show. And today we have a very special guest, long awaited for interview with the famous Anthony Tutan. Anthony has been a theater actor, a producer, a director. He went to film school and um, has been through some pretty serious stuff. So Anthony is going to talk about... Um, before the incident, the incident and how he overcame his challenges and hopefully will inspire all of you. Um, welcome. Well, we're gonna we're gonna play a, a quick film um, before before we bring him on. We're gonna play a film clip of him interviewing uh, Kiefer Sutter, Sunder. I don't know if I'm saying it wrong. Kiefer, and we're gonna show that, and then we're gonna start talking to Anthony, and he's gonna. Tell us everything that went right and everything that went wrong. So welcome, Anthony, in a couple of minutes. An interview with famed stage and screen actor Kiefer Sutherland. How would you say working on The Red Door has compared to... Uh, working on films, say, elsewhere in Canada or North America? It's certainly been unique. I think Newfoundland is such a unique area, such a unique province. Uh, and many people refer to it as a country unto itself, uh, and I can understand why. And with the inconsistencies in the weather that is the norm for St. John's, especially this time of year, has that um, provided any uh, any difficulty in terms of shooting? It hasn't provided us with any difficulty. Um, I mean, one of the things that you have to kind of remember is as severe as the weather is here, um, it's very dramatic. We were, we were out in Portugal Cove and we were shooting right there on the coast, and within five hours, the ice flow came in. If you tried to do that, if you'd written that in a script and you tried to shoot that, it would cost you millions of dollars. And we got it for free. Check, <laughs> checking out the local scene, what do you think of uh, George Street? I don't think I've ever been on a street that had more bars. George Street's fantastic. Uh, I mean, we ran into each other uh, last Sunday, um, and we were just watching a couple bands play, uh, and I remarked that it was, it's been a long time since I watched musicians just hang out and play because they love playing music. And uh, people work very hard here during the week, and the weekend is theirs, and uh, George Street is where they make the most of it. You know? Rumor has it that you've been screeched in. <laughs> yes, yeah. Um, I woke up one morning and I had a degree from the Screechers Academy on my desk and had to go downstairs and ask how I got it. Your grandfather, uh, Thomas Douglas, of course, was uh, was renowned and uh, and greatly responsible for bringing healthcare to Canada. Mm -hmm. um, when you travel throughout Canada, 
Uh, do you do you see the the positive effects that uh, that the system has had on this country? Um, unfortunately, you've had a gov governments over the years taking money out of the national healthcare system and then telling the people that the healthcare system is not working. Well, of course, if you're not going to fund it, it's not going to work. I've watched the Canadian people actually kind of stand up and say, no, we're not going to accept that anymore. And so uh, I'm very happy, uh, not only from Canada, but for my grandfather's legacy, that, that uh, Canadian people at least acknowledge how important and what a source of identity uh, the national health care system in Canada is to them. And so that's very good. Well, Kiefer, thanks a lot. It's a pleasure meeting you, and uh, I hope you enjoy the rest of your stay in Newfoundland. We'll probably see you later on the road. All right, so that was a great film clip of the young Anthony interviewing Keither Sutherland, and uh, we're gonna we're gonna backtrack a little when we bring Anthony on. But welcome, Anthony! Can't wait to hear your story. This is Anthony Tutan from Canada. So, I Anthony, I know. Yes, hi, welcome. And um, you know, when we were talking, you were talking about your famous family. Can you just talk about, I don't know if the people in the U.S. know about the Teutons of Canada, but can you just tell us a little bit about your growing up and that family and that famous film family? Yeah, well, actually, incidentally, my great-grandfather of the same name, Anthony Teuton I, so his, his name, he was born Anthony Moses Teuton, changed his name to Maurice. Um, he was born in Damascus, Syria, back in 1886 and um he came over to newfoundland which was the key port of entry st john's newfoundland which is the oldest city in north america and most easterly point and he structured teuton's photography in uh, 1905 and got the distribution rights from mr george eastman who founded kodak out of rochester new york and uh, had a monopoly my great-grandfather did up until 1949 when uh, Newfoundland joined Confederation. So Newfoundland is the last province to have joined Confederation in Canada in 1949. And I was born in St. John's, Newfoundland. And um, my great-grandfather actually, incidentally, was known as Mr. Anonymous in the United States. So he did have quite a bit of uh, uh, clout there. And um, But things were structured through Newfoundland, out of Rochester, and um across canada up until 49 and then um you mean in terms of the film in terms of the distribution network so, so my, was he, he was, was he the only one that could get the film from kodak where he was, he was and, yeah, and he sell was, it yeah he was the key distributor so yeah. it was called wow. two times the kodak store and um yeah, uh, after that, like in the in the 1950s, late 1940s, early 1950s, Black's photography came on the scene in um, the rest of Canada. And we had a stronghold on Eastern Canada, Nova Scotia, uh, Newfoundland, Labrador. And we had 600 drop-off points around the island and processed and printed in excess of 100 million rolls of film in Newfoundland alone. So, um, so the business was passed on to my grandfather, who's still alive. He's turning uh, 95 in September, and um, my and then on to my father, Anthony Jeffrey Teuton, who passed away February 19th, 2019, unfortunately. Mm. So, um, so yeah, I grew up in a photographic family, um, but from um, 
a major business standpoint. Um, so, so the best way of putting it was, is that my great grandfather would have been an industrialist in the early 1900s and through both world wars. And uh, we had five U.S. bases in Newfoundland. A lot of people in North America are, are not aware of that right now, but we had five U.S. bases throughout both world wars. So it was a major trading point um, for the troops and, um, and tremendous business out of the United States. So, um, so like I said, Newfoundland joined Canada in 1949, but uh, prior to that, we were very, very closely tied with the United States. So that's an incredible business, right? If you guys, were... so so anyone who wanted film up until 1949 had to get it through your family, right? Kodak film. In Canada, in, Ca in Canada. Yeah, in Canada. Yeah. But that's um, huge, right? Yeah, huge. yeah, it's, it's, it's quite significant. And um, the, the culture in Newfoundland is, um, Newfoundland's, uh, been historically uh, huge with respect to the fishery. And so we had a cod moratorium um, several decades ago, and that caused a lot of uh, turmoil for both. A what, a what moratorium? A codfish moratorium. So, codfish. yeah, so cod. Why? Was, Why? Um, because the, the, the cod, um, cod was depleting. And so, so basically, um, it was, we, we were, there was overfishing. So there was a lot of, uh, like foreign trawlers and stuff like that coming mm. in. And, um, and so it, it had a huge impact on the people of Newfoundland and industry. And so in the mid nineties under my father, who was also chairman of the photo marketing association, PMA head of MPG, um, youngest president of the board of trade, youngest president of Rotary at the same time back in the 80s. He in in the mid 90s had to restructure. And so unfortunately, due to industry pressure and the economy in Newfoundland, Teutons had to close its doors in uh, November of 1995. So oh. I the reason I say that is because um, I'll segue to the fact that I, I was at boarding school. I, I was sent to Ridley College in um, the early 90s. And um, and so in 95, I was at Ridley when the business went under and I had no concept for how that would change my hometown, my home mm. province. And why did they have to close? Just because there was other people in the business or or what? No, like, we what had- made them close? It's it's kind of peculiar. We had ninety percent plus market share throughout our. In, in you know, this is even post monopoly in nineteen forty nine. We still maintain ninety percent plus market share. So, and that that we we were also a distributor of Polaroid, you know, Fuji eventually, and all that. It was just the exclusive rights for Kodak ended in forty nine, and so the thing is that um, we could have remained i believe in business my father often told me that but it would have been under a different guise and it would have been in a completely different capacity so you had digital photography coming into play and you had kodak whom we were still a chief um distributor of 
remember I said we had 600 drop-off points or dealers. So we were doing all the photography for all the major uh, grocery stores, grocery outlets, um, drug stores, you know, I mean, you, you, no matter where you were on the Island, you could get your film um, process and print it developed through Teutons photography. So Teutons wow. was everywhere. We had 17 retail outlets um, and they, so they yeah. So what happened when you closed? So people just went to digital. That's why that that was what was happening. Yeah. They weren't was, buying film anymore. Yeah. It was kind of preemptive, you know? Wow. So, um, um, so there was one. Uh, maybe, so you didn't sell the business. You just closed it. Right. Yeah, it, was, it was closed. It went down. Yeah. So, um, so there was Teutons photography and then there was Teutons holdings and the holding company had the properties. And then um, we had one central plant, which was on Cabot Street. And that was built in 1952. Um, and that was the key plant where they had it structured so that 3,500 rolls of film could be processed and printed a day. And they would come from all the dealers. This is pre, you know, Kodak Color Watch yeah. um, setups. Uh, retailers. So, um, yeah. like I said, we eventually had 17 of those, but, um, but you know, it was very, so, there was a flag. Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah. All right. So in 1995, you're at, you're at boarding school. The doors are closed. What happens to you? Did you so have to I, stop going to school? Like did the money stop? Like <laughs> what happened? It's a big change, right? So I went to the university of Toronto at University College on the downtown campus here in Toronto. And I just wanted to say, I'm, I'm actually speaking with you from Toronto, Ontario right now. And okay. um, so I did my first year of university there. I had this um, belief that even though my, my strengths and, and my drive was in theater, I had been writing my own stuff at Ridley College and putting it off at the Mandeville Theater um, and in, uh, drama classes and theater classes with uh, this great teacher, Colin Brzezicki, who was a Rhodes Scholar. Um, and he was my drama teacher and I was heavily inspired, but um, I decided that, you know, I had to go the academic route. And um, that was probably my first in, in hindsight. I mean, everything happens for a reason, sure. But in hindsight, that would have been my first kind of faux pas where I didn't follow my genuine strengths and um, instincts. I decided to go to U of T, which is a top university in North America. And I spent my first year there, but there were a set of things that, that took place. I wasn't able to get student loans because um, too much money had been earned the year before. And, and we're not supposed mm. to talk about this type of stuff. And so, um, so there was a very, very contentious atmosphere, whereas for many people going into their first year of university, their sophomore year, they have an opportunity to um, socialize and and uh, interact and, and get into things that they <laughs> get into trouble, I guess. But um, mm -hmm. I got into a different type of trouble. And um, and so that created a scenario where then I was uh, I transferred back home to Newfoundland, to Memorial University of Newfoundland. And um, that's where I got involved in uh, more theater and uh, 
you know, and I eventually got involved in media and that's where I interviewed Kiefer Sutherland was at a website called sieved.com, S-I-E-V-E-D.com, which was started by Peter Wilkins, who's from Great Britain. And um, he was using St. John's as a test site. So this is pre-YouTube, pre-Flash Media. We were doing, um, we were using QuickTime and doing uh, live streams. And so I was really getting involved in media, but I was also doing a lot of theater. And um, so I was doing plays like Suburbia, PVT Wars, uh, The Zoo Story, all kinds of stuff. So um, so things were promising. And then uh, the internet bubble burst um, in the early 2000s there. And so I was kind of left um, languishing, trying to figure out what to do. And I started doing acting classes here in Toronto with a guy named Kenneth McGregor. And but how did the internet bubble affect you? Because I was working at civ.com and civ. Oh, was, okay. Okay. So, so I kind of went from, I, I jumped ahead there. I kind of went from transferring from the university of Toronto, going to Memorial university in Newfoundland, and then having an opportunity with Civt, and I became okay. the, the face of Civt.com, and I created their web video section. And that's when I got into media. That was my foray into media. Through oh, the cool. And All right. So and I have one other question, and I don't know if you want to answer it, but you said you got into trouble at University of Toronto. What I was, kind of? No, I, I was being facetious. I was saying oh, okay. when, when people have the opportunity, thanks for clarifying that, when people have the opportunity to like, you know, uh, have fun and, and go out and, and all that. Like what, for me, it was trying, that was my first experience of scrounging to try to figure out how to survive while doing academics and while trying to socialize because of the fact that um, I couldn't get student loans because um, in Canada. The, yeah. my, so the business had just shut down. Yeah. So the year before they had plenty of money. Now there's no money. You couldn't get loans because of the year before. Right. Exactly. So all of a sudden you're struggling to survive. You've never had to worry about money before. That's like, right. Am I saying it right? If I'm not correct me. Well, it's not that I, I was from a very conservative family. So my upbringing was very, I would say magical, but the way that we lived in Newfoundland was different than outside of Newfoundland. And I, had spent those formative years at boarding school. And um, again, like from a very conservative family, no doubt. But, um, but you know, I, I didn't ever expect that I wouldn't be able to get a student loan because too much money had been earned the year before or anything yeah. like that. So, so the, the trajectory, to use that term, of my upbringing was shifted dramatically overnight by the 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 year before in 95 the, yeah. the, the business okay okay and, all right um, so yeah, back to Civ. yeah so the internet bubble burst yeah and then and then and then what happened what were you and saying then, then what happened was i was uh this leads up to the incident the incident right. okay. um i was still doing some i went back to doing some theater i was taking some courses at memorial kind of try, languishing trying to figure out what to do in my early 20s going from doing an interview with Kiefer Sutherland that was that he didn't grant to anybody else because we we were burgeoning me, like media this was like small cameras you know 
digital cameras. Uh, like I was on the foray of that, but I didn't, I think, understand the the nature of it. I also didn't understand what was going on socially, even though I was out and about and interviewing people and whatnot. Um, I believe that I was a bit of a target. And then on my father's birthday, December 11th, 2002, I was um, drugged. Somebody slipped something in my drink and uh, brutally uh, taken advantage of and essentially raped and um, to, to put it bluntly. And it was a horrific incident whereby I came to, at, um, I, I have been out, um, like knocked out and I came to as it was happening. And I remember specifically thinking, um, and I know this is heavy, but I remember thinking, I have to remember this. I don't want to remember this. I have to remember this. I remember trying to swing my, like I was into martial arts as well and stuff. And I, I'm left-handed and my left arm was pinned. I tried to swing my right arm. And that's when I saw the face of the individual and um, then was out again and didn't wake up until the, the early evening, late afternoon, the next day and, or that day or whatever. And, uh, and it was that that my life was forever changed, and uh, and the aftermath. And where did you wake up? You were still there. You were still at his yeah. place. Yeah, wherever that, yeah. wherever that was, and uh, right. okay, you know what I mean is that I didn't know where I was, and so right. okay. um, so it was not like a thriller of a film. If you were to use a genre, it was a horror film, and um and and the aftermath was um as horrific if not more so than before and what what i've learned in in saying that to you what i've learned today is as hard as it is not to care about what other people think not to and for years i was trying to you know i was rehashing the incident i was rehashing what was going on and i was drowning my sorrows and um and i guess to put, to bring it full circle um and I think we discussed this before you and I, I had a bit of an epiphany whereby recently I was able to do an interview with a woman uh, named Elizabeth Witten, who's a writer. And um, she wrote an article which was published April 30th on uh, through the CBC, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation here in Canada. And that's, I didn't know what to expect and I knew that my life would be different no matter what. And sure enough, it, it was dramatically different. And since that point, uh, and since the release of that article, there's been a, there's been a relief and a sense of, wow, I can talk about this. And it's amazing that by going public, you can actually, I'm going public, whatever that means. I mean, this is public, <laughs> uh, you know, you, you can, uh, experience, like I said, that sense of relief or a sense of relief. And then it, it, it's, it's also empowering. And there's a, there's a lot that comes with it. And I feel that by finding my voice, I've been able to get the word out, but at the same time, um, hopefully help other people. And so that's, that's where we are today. So, okay. So, so the incident happened in 
2002, right? I know on your dad's birthday. And then the interview with Elizabeth was how many years later? I mean, I guess 20. It was this this past April 30th. Wow. Okay. So 20 years later. And for those 20 years, I know you said you were drowning your sorrows. You, you I guess you weren't talking about it because you were worried about what people would think, right? Is that like, tell me a little bit about those. And, and if you, if it's too painful, don't, but if no, like 20 years is a long time. So what were you doing for those 20 years? And then we're going to talk about what you, you know, what, where you've been and what you're doing now in the next half. But just if you don't mind, what the heck were you doing for 20 years? Were you working at all? Were you like, where were you living? Like what was going on? I was back and forth between Toronto and St. John's. So okay. between the most easterly point and then of in Canada, North America, and then central Canada, which is here in Toronto, the Mecca of Toronto. And um, I was trying to find my way. I, it's not, it's not as challenging now thinking back to it, but when I was going through it, it was like I said, a horror film. It was, it was brutal. So I, I've never been back on the stage. So I've been acting since I was a kid. Like I was Jack and Jack and the Beanstalk when I was like, um, when I was young, I was tested by the Guildhall School of Music and Drama. I was taking courses through a woman named Mary Sherritt and we were regularly putting off plays. I, you know, I was like, acting was my passion. Nothing came close to that. And it was very natural for me. And so, so to segue into Cived, um and and learn all the digital media was um that component was was fantastic and so and the work with peter wilkins and um john watson and and different individuals it was uh it was a, a great experience um and that was all prior prior that, to the incident that's prior and so the reason i say right. that is because i never went back on stage but what I did do was I would do like a commercial here or there. Like I was the face of um, for I am Canadian for a Muslim Canadian commercial, which was quite significant. There was, you know, some some stuff like that. But um, but the reason I say this is I decided to I, I wanted to go to film school. I wanted to get behind the camera and I started to do that. And I had been developing the documentary, which ultimately um, we discussed Teutons Photography in the Business of Making Memories. Um, I'd been developing that the whole time, no pun intended, um, and even <laughs> pre-incident. So like I always had this idea okay. to do a documentary about my great grandfather being an immigrant from Damascus, Syria, and, you know, having this robust, huge career. And, um, and so... So what happened was I won the entrance scholarship to the Toronto Film School uh, for a piece that I did called Restaurants Are Not Democracies about uh, Michael Carlevel, who was a famed, the late Michael Carlevel, who was a famed um, chef and restaurateur here in Canada, owned Prego della Piazza, Byzantium, and the Boston Club, and amongst others. And, um, and Prego was like the establishment restaurant here at the base of the Renaissance Plaza, at Avenue and Bloor Street, um, next to the. And Forest. what what year was this? 
that would have been so um so i did restaurants are not democracies i i guess i just released it on online through youtube but um no i don't mean just as in recently but that was that was back in like 2006 around that time oh okay and and so 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 i got back on track pretty quickly like i was traveling through the u.s with my ex-girlfriend developing this documentary and then i decided to go to film school which was at the cbc center here in downtown toronto and so that's when i went into film school and that's when i really got the the passion to start filming associated with the Teuton documentary. So there's there's a parallel between the Teuton documentary, in and out, in and out, in and out, me dealing with the flashbacks and the of the rape and the aftermath and um, finding out that it's happened to all these other people and dealing with the survivor's guilt, which is a whole nother uh, component. And then, um, and then me being at film school, seeing it through and then up until, uh, well, of course, COVID was was horrific. And right, you know what? We need to. We're gonna hold that thought. We're gonna get to COVID, and then we're gonna come back after the commercial break, and then we're gonna keep going and show a bit of your film and and finish the rest of the story. Is that cool? You yeah. Cool with that. Sure. Okay. Yeah. All right. Very good. Has social-emotional learning become just one more thing on your teacher's plates? Do teachers and students both find it boring and ineffective? Then bring Kikori to your school. Kikori transforms classrooms through experiential SEL activities that help students play, reflect, connect, and grow. Even better, students say it's more fun than recess. Schedule a no-obligation conversation at kikoriapp.com slash bringkikori. K-I-K-O-R-I. Do you ever feel like you can't say what you really want to say? Or that you're stuck or in a holding pattern in your relationships, career, personal life, or finances? Are there things you want in life that you've given up on? Are you resigned that this is as good as it's going to get? If you answered yes to any of these questions, then Hillary Burns, host of the Getting Real with Hillary show, has the solution you need. Hillary is a published author of three books and has a program called The Getting Real Process. This process frees you from what is holding you back, allowing you to create a life you love. Don't believe it? It is hard to believe that it could work, isn't it? The proof is that hundreds of Hillary's clients have used The Getting Real Process and are now free to create whatever they want in relationships, career, finances, enjoying life, or just loving themselves more. So go to realtalkwithhillary.com and order Hillary's book, Real Talk, instead of a conversation. So thank you to our sponsor, Kikori App. That's where my daughter Haley worked, and it's a wonderful company. Um, 
social emotional learning for children. If you have any kids who you think are behind or just want to bring in social emotional learning, that's fun. Go to kikori.app. Normally I would show my books, uh, my Real Talk book. Uh, you could go to realtalkwithhillary.com. If you don't think you speak up, if you're afraid to speak up, we can work together. That's been what I've been overcoming for years is not speaking up, people pleasing, being pleasant and not being my real self. So if that's something that um, calls to you, connect with me at realtalkwithhillary.com, get my book and let's let's get you free. So anyway, welcome back, Anthony Tutan. What an incredible, incredible story. Thank you so much for your generosity, for being willing, for your courage. And um, I just want to say that, you know, when we had been talking before, I know there had been a 20, 20 year gap between the incident and now and you speaking up. So I'm glad to hear that you weren't just drowning your sorrows that whole time. And that, you know, that's when you went to film school. That's when you were touring the States with your girlfriend and working on your documentary, which we're going to see a little bit of. So what else were you doing during that time? And then what had you finally talk to Elizabeth? Or is that too much to remember? <laughs> no, it's not. It's, it's, it's crazy because um, there's a book called In the Blink of an Eye by Walter Murch, who's probably considered one of the greatest um, cinematic film editors of all time. And um, yeah, he wrote this book called In the Blink of an Eye. And I was just thinking that title, um, which is almost like a cliche, but cliches are cliches because they're true. And that title in, a, in the Blink of an Eye is how I kind of, see that 20 years it's almost like overnight everything changed and whether there was some brain damage due to the drugging and or the actual attack it was like an out-of-body experience so I almost felt like a bit of an alien and I would have to suddenly pe people expected me to be normal people expected me to be you know, there's all this talk like, are you gay and all this sort of stuff. It doesn't matter if you're gay or straight. I am straight. But the thing is, it doesn't matter. Rape is rape. It's like Obama made that statement, you know, when Senator Todd Aiken made um, those horrible statements with respect to to rape. And, and President Obama came out and said, look, rape is rape. You know, you can parse this word. You can parse that word. It, it doesn't matter. And, and, and so so I learned to live according to that but in terms of the last 20 years it was like it took place in the blink of an eye and then when I think back I'm like well at least I have some relief now but what led up to the the pre-interviews with Elizabeth and then the discussions with her and up to the article and not knowing what was going to transpire once the article was released, like it was delayed by a week that that week was like more harrowing than probably anything else, because, it, you know, you, it's in your head and you're you're trying to extrapolate these these ideas and visions and stuff like that. And then you don't know what to so do. Anthony, when you said um, like you felt like an alien, people were expecting you to be normal. So. Yeah. You know, there you are 
pretending to be normal and inside your head is not normal. Like you're going crazy inside your head. So you felt like two people sort of, would you, is, is that correct yeah. or no? Yes. Over 20 years, you're living, pretending to be okay. But meanwhile, that's what's circling insert, right? Is that? Yeah. Yeah. And, wow. and all the symptoms. So I have ADHD and I was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder due to this incident very shortly thereafter, but I wasn't aware of that. And this was done in Newfoundland. And so I'm back and forth between Newfoundland and Ontario. And the thing is, in Canada, um, uh, healthcare is structured provincially. So the two different organ or provinces don't don't necessarily communicate with one another. And then the onus is on the individual to properly communicate what's going on. So for example, the way that I'm presenting myself right now is not an act. This is like very much how I am and who I am. The way that I presented myself during the, that period of time prior to the release of this article is very is is dramatically different. Now that it should be noted. There are some very, 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 very key people that um, want to remain nameless, uh, nameless, but um, that helped. So they just threw the kindness of their hearts. And um, actually, that's why I'm able to speak to you today is because um, I was guided by a set of individuals who stepped in. And so that was, they stepped in prior to the article. And it, it is rather recent. So I was targeted several times. Stepped in, stepped in how? Like medically or emotionally or every way? How did they step well, in? There, it, it, in hindsight, like there was an, uh, it, it was a multi-layered effort. But that's only in hindsight. As it was happening, I was just following my instincts. Again, right. you don't know who to trust, right? Because I trusted those people that night on my dad's birthday, you know, back in 2002. I mean... Um, it's like, you know, the great singer and performer, Eddie Vedder from Pearl Jam said, you know, success is the greatest revenge because it, and this is a form of success, being able to find your voice, being able to communicate with people like yourself and, um, interact with people like Don and, and Doug Newsom and, and, and have a, a sense of, okay, well, it's like mise en place, right. And time and place. And that's, that's where I am right now, where, I was able to find my voice um, by accepting the support of people I could suddenly trust and in interesting them, I, you know, found myself to you and I, and, and here we are like, this is all. And so we could say that, that um, there was a, uh, in hindsight, the, 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 since my film was released and won the award in San Diego, Back in 2000, September, late September of 2021, Teutons Photography in the Business of Making Memories, that the trajectory, even though there were several horrific things that happened and I got targeted and everything stolen and hacked, <laughs> I I was able to to find my my voice and find my way out of that. And that <laughs> led me to being able to entrust the right people. But there's something very challenging with PTSD, um, the trust factor. So it's very, very difficult to know who to trust and when to trust them. But when you finally do <laughs> and you realize that they've got your back and they're going to stand by you, it's a, it, it's 
it's better than winning the lottery, right? Like in, in terms of the, the cliched concept, it's um, that we think of in society and cultures, right? Like it's, it, it's akin to re, relearning who you actually are and understanding that there are great people out there. And so that corollary, that sense of, of relief and goodness, um, and it, love would you love, say love yeah love it it overrides that 20 years of debauchery and and horrific flashbacks one thing i wanted to tell you is with ptsd what was most brutal was i couldn't i could never sleep properly so so like i was constantly acting like i was okay or trying to when i wasn't and that's what was taking place. So like I I would have these flashbacks that would in, immediately your your instinct is almost like a suicidal one whereby you're thinking, I just want this to end. I need this to end. You know, but the 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 stress is so overwhelming. And then the the hardest part is seeing how it impacts other people and then being left kind of silent and uh, wordless at times because you you're faced with the guilt not just the survivor's guilt that oh like all these other people were hurt after I was hurt uh in terms of the timing so therefore you know why couldn't I have done something about it or I should have done this differently or if um the police had gotten involved but like maybe if um if this had happened differently you know uh like the thing is I I, I adamantly told the truth and they say the truth will set you free, but maybe it takes over 20 years for that to happen. Right? <laughs> so maybe. Wow. So. All right. So how did. Yeah. So I'm sorry about all that. It sounds horrific, as you said. Um, how did you get connected with Elizabeth? And how did you. I mean, if you were you said you were talking about it during that time. But I think you were talking about it in a different way than when you talked to Elizabeth on April 30th, because that somehow got you free, the way you talked to Elizabeth. What what is the difference between how you were talking about it? And how I, I know I'm asking you like five questions. <laughs> no, no, it's okay. Um, with respect to Elizabeth, I had come across some of her work. This is all online. This is the magic of where we're at with Facebook and different apps and stuff. I had um, come across some of her work. I knew that she had studied in Germany and she was from Newfoundland and um, she was a young freelancer and we had connected. And then I um, communicated to her that, look, I think I have a story here, you know, and I had been, I should go back. I, done a video with Angel Lassard, who's from North Bay here in Ontario. And that's for her organization called the Family Village Services. And it was for Mental mm -hmm. Health Week. And that was a couple of years back. And so it was kind of on the heels of that. I'd come back to realize, okay, look, I've won this award or I've gotten this recognition through San Diego of all places for a documentary out of Newfoundland. But there's there's more to this story like it's not just like oh like he made this film you know it was like it it was 
it was a labor of love. But the thing is that there was more going on. So then when I connected with Elizabeth, after having seen some of her work, I just kind of tossed around the idea with her. And then that was like pre, that was like in March of, you know, prior to April. And, um, and then we did a pre-interview while I was living with my friend, Johnny Sykema, who owns a company called Buzzbox. And I was working with him. And then I did that, the like kind of pre-interview with her um, from Johnny's and from his office. And then I kind of felt this like strange relief because I was in survival mode. This is just, you know, recently in, in the spring. And then, and then it was my friend, um, Marianne, who uh, really, I, I guess, caught on to the fact that, that I was improving as I was speaking about this. And then, then I did the real pre-interview um, with Elizabeth. And then that's when I thought, I, I, I was over the phone and I got off the phone and I thought, okay, um, <laughs> this is uncharted territory. I've never really felt this way before. What the heck's going to happen? And then um, there was just like back and forth. Um, you know, is this going to get picked up? Like what's going Like it, it was more like uh, I kind of just let it go. I, I said, okay, it's out there. I've said my piece. And then, um, and then, like I said, the article was supposed to come out. And then I felt very, 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 very nervous. And I knew that my life was going to be different. Um, I don't mean to over-dramatize it. It's literally what I felt. And I knew it was going to be different the day after it came out. And then it finally came out April 30th. And I was with my friend. And um, I read it. I kind of was wondering if I should take like a Johnny Depp approach, which is, not to, he doesn't watch his own stuff, you know, like he doesn't, he just kind of, it's kind of like set it and forget it, move on. Right. Um, but I read it and I thought, wow, this is, this is pretty powerful. And I thought she did a remarkable job of encapsulating what I spoke to her about. And then I thought, okay, this is going to be interesting. And then I, I realized that it, it kind of, went gangbusters and went out like in a very specific way over the internet because it was an actual article that was like written for the internet mm. you know published through the crown corporation of the canadian broadcasting corporation so it was pretty major and they used pictures of me from before with a character that i created named buckheimer styles and like they juxtapose that against an image of me presenting my film at the Niagara Artist Center. So it was kind of like this, this mm. thing that I, it was beyond me. It was, it, and, and, and the story came through and I liked the fact that they just addressed or she addressed it with a couple of lines, you know, in terms of sexual assault and, um, but what that represents. And I think anybody that understands, you know, that um, how horrific um, something like that can be, because we're not just like, we're not just, I don't mean to downplay any aspect of it or, or overplay any aspect of it. 
it is what it is. We're talking about, like I said, it was like an out-of-body experience. It has nothing to do with whether or not you're straight or gay. It has mm-hmm. more to do with this date rape drug, which, thank God, has since the early 2000s been marginalized and taken off the streets because, frankly, the people who were putting it out there were having it happen to themselves and to their kids and to their nieces and nephews, and they were realizing the impact of it. And so we're talking about, you know, thousands and thousands of people that were impacted that that have not found a voice. Mm. Well, thank you for speaking up for all of you. Thank you for giving me an opportunity to do so. So how, you know, we were talking about when you finally can speak, And again, the difference between you speaking in that interview versus those 20 years speaking about it, what what was the difference that day or during those pre-interviews with Elizabeth? Were you finally able to kind of marry the pretend self to the real self and become whole again, do you think? It almost sounds like that alien sort of disappeared as you spoke to her and you could come back to yourself and stop hiding in a sense versus when you told the story before i don't know I don't yeah know. so, so what, suddenly, what do you think the difference was yeah suddenly i like i haven't drank in a long, long time i was drowning my sorrows in alcohol for for years and years and years and alcohol has its benefits obviously it was prescribed at different points for post-traumatic stress disorder during prohibition and um, different times. And during so prohibition. No, it's true. It's true. Um, wow. it, yeah. Um, and during both world wars, actually, Sir Frederick Banting, uh, who's the founder of insulin. Um, and I did a documentary about him. Um, it, it, it was being like he would prescribe it um, for um, individuals with shell shock as it was called, um, wow. which, which is now known as post-traumatic stress disorder as well. But um, the thing is that... So what happened? Yeah, go back to that interview. Yeah, so so what happened was I... I it, was, it was on instinct. Actually, I was inspired by an interview that a friend of mine who hosts a show called Q here in Canada, a very famous show, Tom Power... And he interviewed Bono from U2. And, and they talked about the church and they talked about um, religion. And Tom Power spoke up about Mount Cashel. And Mount Cashel was the orphanage in Newfoundland, which was um, is, is historically known. It was torn down, but um, there was uh, major sexual assault uh, that took place um, at the hands of the Christian brothers in Newfoundland. And mm. so um, just quickly, he, Tom, you know, asked Bono about religion. And then Bono, his response to what Tom said when when he asked Tom Power what he had thought, and he used the example of growing up in Newfoundland, like myself, and hearing about these egregious acts that happened through the Mount Cashel Orphanage at the hands of the Christian brothers, and then um, Bono's response was the coolest, calmest, 
most appropriate response I think I've ever seen. And that's what inspired me. That's when I said, I have to do something about this. Then there was also some other music. What was his response? Just what was his very, response? Just very calculated and very calm. Like he knew, like he understood better than anybody coming from Ireland. And like Newfoundland's like mm. a, a sister to, to Ireland, right? So like my middle name is McGraw. I'm heavily Irish as well. So it's like, um. so the thing is that- um, so this, he, Yeah, so he inspired you with however he was calm. And then you went to the interview and you- somehow took that on i i just spoke the truth and i just let it flow and i didn't know what like there was no rhyme or reason except to say i'm going to speak the truth i'm going to find my voice through speaking the truth which i feel i'm kind of doing now i'm i mean obviously i'm prone to taking tangents in this state (laughs) but um (laughs) But it's I come upon it, I think, honestly, not to frustrate, but um, but sometimes it's good to frustrate because you want to shake, shake shit up. You know, you want to shake things. Sorry for my language, but you want to shake things up and you want to um, find the real you, you know, Mm -hmm. and um, and inspire other people. And so when you find that voice and you find that strength, it, it there's something very cathartic about it mm. and um we're we're always in repair right we're, we're constantly in repair like that which i have a i came up with a statement through all of this that which is easy for you is not easy for everybody else mm-hmm. so it might be very easy for you to have a show and to present yourself in a certain way and find people that inspire you to constantly create a better show in my case um for years i was relegated to a certain position where which was very kind of barbaric like i you know neanderthalic like i couldn't i i I would i couldn't even that's why i couldn't act because i wasn't myself i couldn't i wasn't Mm. you know and so i'd find substances to try to cope and fill the voids and the thing is that by finding my voice it was very cathartic and so in hindsight i didn't know this going into it hillary but in hindsight up until that the release of that article um the therapeutic nature and the therapy that took place there is like nothing i've ever experienced and maybe you know wow i mean 20 years i mean I mean, now I can just hope that the next 20 are the very best and um, only greater because of what I experienced. So like there is no good or bad. There just is type of thing. Right, 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 right. So it sounds like, yeah, I mean, I think we all go through, you know, I had a period where I wasn't myself. I wrote my first book about it. I didn't know how it had happened, but I... I woke up one day and said, who the heck am I? And it, yeah. and it was a process to come back. So I get it. And and I didn't have a horrific, I mean, I'm not comparing it. I didn't have a horrific incident. I had my own, you know, I had my own stuff, but I think we all maybe lose track of ourselves and then 
know, the good news is you're coming back or you're back. So welcome back to the world. Yeah. And thank you so much. Let's see. How much time do we have? Okay. We have just enough time. Thank you so much, really, for your your courageousness and, and your authenticity. We're going to show a little bit of your documentary right now that won the award in San Diego. I can't find my notes, but um, I'm sure you can tell us. And then in case we go right to the end, what is there any message you have for people, anyone who's maybe gone through something like this or anything that you just want to say uh, before we before we go to your documentary? Yes, that you are enough. You have it within you to be enough and to tackle whatever comes in front of you. That unfortunately, some people don't make it. Some people, and that's it's it's for them that you know we pray and we say, okay, well that person couldn't make it. I I remember there there okay there was no. Um, there was nothing cathartic about seeing somebody who had the same thing happen to them, apparently at the, the hands of the same per perpetrator and predator. There was nothing cathartic about seeing them worse off than I was. I almost wanted to feel their pain more myself than they did. But there is a way out. And you can pull yourself out of that paper bag. You don't have to act your way out of it. You can just be true and real, find your voice, and there is a way out, and you are enough. Mm. Thank you. Well, thank you for finding your voice. Thank you for giving me an opportunity to do so. Yeah, and if people want to find you, um, where did I write it? We have, if you want to go to, well, his old YouTube with the Kiefer Sutherland is youtube.com backslash Tuton, T-O-O-T-O-N. And his newer YouTube is YouTube at Tutons, T-O-O-T-O-N-S, photography in the biz, B-I-Z. Is there any other way that people could contact you if they have a story or they want to? Make a yeah. documentary or anything or get in touch? How would they do that? Yeah, they can email me at tutonanthony at gmail.com. So T-O-O-T-O-N-A-N-T-H-O-N-Y at gmail.com. All right. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. A family business is a passion play because you're mixing blood and money. Two times a colon. <laughs> if you're in taking pictures or not, the only one place to go is two times. Mm -hmm. So it was sort of a monopoly stage in the early years. Right. Yeah. Two times a Kodak store will make your prints in any style you want. Glass, semi-glass, or matte finish. The frequent expressions of pleasure from our many satisfied customers are our best testimonials to the quality of our work. <laughs> wow. So what would uh, Poppy be saying to Joey here? Harry, Harry, thank you, friends, for your loyal patronage in the past year. 
And we wish you all a very happy new year, two times the Kodak store. He, he was just at that time, uh, as was my father, a very successful businessman who had built the business. And uh, this generally happens with immigrants that come over. Mm -hmm. uh, they put everything into their particular thing, not only throughout St. John, but probably known throughout the country. Kodak was the big name, and Tudor's was the was Kodak. Right. Tony, uh, Jeff Sterling, we didn't have a 50-year contract. And we had to, in fact, we had nothing but a word of mouth. And he was on with us during the entire time he ran the, the business. In the business of making memories, both of you, three of us, take, what, what's the date? 15th? 15th of January 2027, <laughs> 2010, take one. So thank you for watching the Getting Real with Hillary show today with Anthony Tutan. It has certainly been um, courageous of him to tell his story. And I hope that this show can make a difference for other people who may have experienced uh, something traumatic like him. And again, if you find yourself not finding your voice, you can reach out to Anthony at tutananthony at gmail.com or go to realtalkwithhillary.com. Take the Real Talk quiz and I am happy to help anybody who is afraid to speak up, you know, just can't see themselves speaking up. That was me. That was Anthony. And I'm happy to get all of us free. So thank you again for listening. It's been real.